feet. And I had to go back and double check to see where we left off. I know I had studied a certain amount, but it's been so long since we've been in Genesis, you know. And I had to make sure we finished chapter 7, so we did. And uh, we'll pick up in chapter 8 today. So um, I told somebody we had to go have get over to the church so we could let Noah off the ark. He'd been on there a long time. He's ready to get off. And we're going to read verse 1 through 19 today. Genesis 8, 1 through 19. I have one, so you don't need to give me one. Um, if you, for some reason, need an extra one or know someone that wants one, we can print off more. Uh, copies are, are available to print, so please let me know if you need one. and We'll try to make sure we have some available next Sunday as well for those who are gone today. Genesis chapter 8 is our reading, and is there some that could read with me today? Genesis 8. Deborah volunteers, and Joanna, can you read also? Okay. So let's have Deborah read uh, 8, um, 1 through 7, and then Joanna, you can read verse 8 down to verse 12, and then I will read 13 to 19. So we're in Genesis chapter 8. Deborah begins with verse 1 through 7. read your section you read mine okay verse 8 also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground but the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot and she returned to him into the ark for the waters were on the face of the whole earth and he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in to him into the ark and he stayed yet another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came in to him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. And he stayed yet another seven days and sent forth the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. Verse 13 through 19. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. And God spoke to Noah, saying, Go forth from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring forth with you every living thing that is with you, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth, 
that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creeps on the earth, according to their kind, went forth out of the ark. Okay. Let's have prayer together. Brother Matt, would you pray for us? Amen. Amen. All right. So beginning in chapter eight, we find that Noah is on the ark. Let's just do a quick uh, thought review of what it means for Noah to be on the ark. He is with the same eight people for a quite long time. We'll talk about the length in a little bit. I spent um, five days with about 27 people in a beach house. And I love and enjoy my family, but I think it's good I didn't spend 360 days with those same 27 people. And that was in a beach house where you could go in and out. Um, I imagine after all this time, they're getting very, very tired of the ark. They're getting very tired of each other, maybe. Um, of course, you're the last eight people on earth, so you better learn to get along. But, um, but still, I think we can imagine a little bit being cooped up, right? How many windows were in the ark? One. Where was it? Up top. So during the 40 days and 40 nights of rain, how much sun did they see? Zero. And we can imagine or wonder what it was like after that. It may have been overcast for a while. But even so, you only have one window, right? One window, it's up on top. And so being in the darkness for that long, I imagine that it felt even longer. And especially on the dark days, um, again, I can't prove, I don't know all the details, but I imagine that when the sun finally came out and it was shining down through that little window, they were so overjoyed, right? But it's been a long time. And, um, and so, you know, in chapter 7, verse 1, they come into the ark, right? In chapter 8, it says, and God remembered Noah. It had been, um, by some people's counts, around a year and over a year, some people say a little bit over a year, that Noah spent on the ark. And regardless of the exact number of days, it, the, the Bible says God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. So I read that probably as God remembered Noah, God remembered the other seven, and God remembered the animals. Um, and so when you, when you read that phrase, God remembered Noah, what does that make you think of? What's that? Say it again. He was thought about. Yes, God specifically thought about Noah. That's good. Anyone else? I wonder if it's not a reference to the fact that Noah felt forgotten. Now, we can't prove that, but it does say God remembered Noah. Now, we know that God didn't forget about Noah, right? God wasn't like, oh, yeah, man, I better get him off the ark. You know, it's not a forget in that sort of thing. This is not the language of forgetting, but it's, it's a reference of God's action, his intervention, his divine choosing. Um, someone said God can't forget anything without choosing to, and God cannot learn anything, right? Um, someone else said, Spurgeon said this, he who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. And um, at this point, you know, Abraham hasn't looked up to the stars and God told him that he'll have you know, 
see like the stars of heaven, but it's possible that Noah could see the stars a little bit through the window of the ark at nighttime. And, um, but the Bible says God remembered Noah. So we'll make a little application now. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but there are moments where we feel forgotten by God, right? And it's usually in moments where there's testing or there's trouble or things aren't going well and we feel forgotten. But the fact and our feelings are not matching up because the fact is we're not forgotten, but we feel like it, right? So in those moments, we have to decide where we're going to lean. Are we going to lean on our feelings or are we going to lean on the fact of the matter? And the fact is we're not forgotten. And as we lean on that and think on that and meditate on that, guess what's going to happen to our feelings? They're slowly going to get in line, right? Eventually. And, um, and the opposite is when we lean on our feelings, that fact gets more and more distant, doesn't it? And so uh, Noah, he is remembered of the Lord. God intervenes. Clearly, he's taking action for Noah. And it says God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged. Um, we don't hear that word every day, assuaged. But it's very similar to the word abated later. It means to go away, to go down. Um, and so this wind passes over the whole earth. Do you remember when wind was over the water before the last time? Well, I guess it doesn't say wind. It says God's breath was upon the waters in creation, right? The spirit was upon the waters. Um, so there's that idea there of, of wind or, or breath or motion there on the water. Here, the whole earth is covered with water and God sends a wind. And maybe we, um, well, let's, let's pair this up with verse two and three and kind of pull it together. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. So the sources of water were ended and were ceased from producing more water. Um, that kind of tells me that there was more that could have come, <laughs> you know, but God stopped it and, and it could have been even more. But remember, God was seeking to accomplish something and Noah and his family could only be on that ark for so long. And so God had arranged the beginning. He had arranged them getting on and he is also going to arrange the ending and the getting off. Um, what a help that is to us in our trials that God knows when the chapter starts and he knows when the chapter ends and he gets us into the challenge or trial or whatever it might be and he will bring us out of it as well so that is a, a vital truth to hold on to all right verse three and the waters return from off the earth continually and according to the end of the 150 days the waters were abated so this is the word abated earlier we saw the word assuage very similar in idea um, the word here for abated also has this idea of they failed. And I thought about that word failed, and I remembered that in verse chapter 7, it says the waters prevailed. Do you remember that? The waters prevailed in chapter 7, the waters failed in chapter 8. And remember how we talked about, with, with the waters prevailing, we talked about how you cannot avoid the judgment of God when it comes. If it's set for you and intended for you, you can't get out of it. That's the waters prevailing but here the waters are failing, and so they're, they're reversing. And it reminded me of a couple other times in Scripture where the waters prevailed and then they failed. Can we think of a couple times where the waters prevailed and then failed? Anyone at all? Suggestion? Bible story involving water. Yes, Tim. All right, when Jesus calmed the sea, the storm is raging, 
And then when, when he says, peace be still, immediately the waters failed, right? They fell into place. They stopped and the wind stopped. And in that instance, the wind stopped as well. So the water and the wind returned to their normal place. What's another one? Jonah and the whale. Yeah, that's right. When they tossed him over, immediately the storm stopped. That's a good example. The waters were prevailing, and then they were failing. There's another big story I'm thinking of. The Red Sea. That's right. Do you remember it says God sent a wind? And he formed a path there. And so Israel went through the waters, right? But then when God said, oh, that's it. Egypt is right in the middle chasing after them, and the waters failed, and they came back in on themselves. So, um, you know, again, the word fail and prevail in that story depends on who you're talking about, right? Because they, they prevailed for the Israelites and they failed for the Egyptians at the right moment. So, um, but, but clearly we see God is the author. He, is, he has his hand at, at the throttle. Things are happening according to his plan. And, you know, if God didn't intervene, I mean, I don't know the natural process of how long it would take for all this water to dissipate. I mean, uh, I don't know if he had to open up channels to receive it. Like, I don't know exactly all how it happened, but I imagine if he just let it be to its natural course that they would have been stuck on the ark too long, perhaps. And so God sends this wind, and the wind will bring evaporation. The wind will bring any land that starts to be exposed can be dried out. And so we have a progression in the story. All right, any question or comment before verse 4? Okay. All right. Verse uh, 4 then says, And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. Okay. A quick note here. Mountains is plural. So it's not on one mountain. It's on mountains. And um, that's probably even just a reference to the location. I don't know that it's literally saying it's suspended between two mountains, but rather it's giving the area. Many people are like, oh, it's on Mount Ararat. Well, it's in the mountains of Ararat. And in the Bible, two out of three occasions, Ararat is a reference to a, a country or a nation as opposed to one specific mountain. So there are people today who, you know, try to say they have found the ark or they think it's here, they think it's there. And, um, you know, we don't know where it is, I don't think. Um, and if someone really had found it, the Catholic Church would have built something on top of it already. So, you know, that's kind of how they roll with things over there. Um, however, I guess it is fair to point out this is probably, Ararat is probably, is believed to be in Turkey. So if it is in Turkey, I guess the Muslims have uh, control of that place right now. But um, the, the thing about it is I believe God placed the ark at a strategic point so that when they exited, they could spread over the earth. So Turkey is... You know, there's Europe to the north, northwest, and then you have Asia to the east, and, you know, Africa is not far going down through the Middle East, and so it's easy to spread around the world. Um, and then verse 5 says, the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So, again, I don't know if this is from God's point of view, in that he sees the tops of the mountains, or if it's from Noah's point of view, if he's somehow able to perch himself out of this upper window and look out and he sees. But either way, the mountaintops are starting to show. Things are improving, going in the right direction. And little by little, the situation is getting better. Because remember, the 40 days of 40 nights were probably very stormy. 
the noise, you know, and then what happens is you have the, the mountaintop starting to show, and then we're going to get to the point of where the ark rests, um, and it comes to rest, and then they begin to send out birds and so on. So there's a, there's a progression. I imagine when they came to rest that everybody felt it, you know. Oh, you know. And then they could probably hear the water on the side of the ark, and slowly that would just, the noise of that would just disappear. And as the water receded further, that's just them and the ark there. We would kind of imagine or, or wonder why, you know, once it came to rest, why didn't they just, you know, leave the ark immediately? Well, A, it's not God's time yet. But also, what, what are their options for food at this point, right? We, there's no Walmarts, right? There's no gardens planted. I mean, what is their options for food? As I thought about it, I was like, they probably had to fish because there was lots of fish, but they couldn't kill the animals, right? Because the animals had to produce and everything. So uh, maybe if they, uh, you know, I guess in theory, they could kill one of the ones they had seven of or seven sets of perhaps. But, but fishing would probably be a big thing because um, there's meat there and there's plenty of fish because none of the fish have died. And so that would be a big thing. And then eventually things would start to grow back, berries and other sundry items that they could eat. Okay, so that takes us down to verse 6. And it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. All right, so he literally could get up there and open it, all right? So, but it says it's at the end of 40 days that he opens this window. Again, that question about the tops of the mountains, not so sure on that. And he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. The raven and the dove are different sorts of birds. Do we know any difference between a raven and a dove? Any, any distinctions that anyone knows? What's that? One is black and the other is? Okay. That's one distinction. Any other distinctions? One is ugly, is that what you said? <laughs> Bad luck, yeah. Bad luck. The raven is bad luck. That's right. And the dove is peace. All right. So one is a negative connotation. One has a positive connotation. Okay. Anything else? How about the raven will eat meat, but the dove will only eat plants? Okay. Doves don't eat meat. Ravens eat meat. So a carnivore versus a herbivore. Um, now, I guess one could say, had God set up animals to eat other animals at that very moment, or was it, you know, we could discuss that. But at least in our time, ravens can eat meat, and doves generally only eat vegetation. And then also, ravens are a more hardy, bigger bird that can fly further. They're a little stronger. A dove is a more gentle, small, not quite so strong sort of bird. And um, Another distinction that was brought out in my study is a raven can pretty much land on anything, anywhere. It's strong and not very sensitive to that sort of thing. But a dove is more like picky. Like if it's a wet, slimy, nasty spot, a dove won't land on it, right? So a dove really has to have a, a good place to land before it'll land. So it says the raven goes to and fro. It's flying back and forth and all around. And a lot of people think with verse 7 that it did come back. It doesn't say that in the verse. But the idea of to and fro, some people understand that to mean that the raven came back to the ark and then took off and then came back and then took off. 
that's how some people interpret that to and fro. So we got this raven that can't quite settle out there. And if we understand it's coming back, then, you know, the idea is things aren't settled yet. All right. Verse eight, he's also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. So, you know, the raven is like level one test. The dove is another level test. And Noah knows that the dove has to have a dry spot to land. It's not going to just land on something floating or uh, something wet and nasty that isn't really dried at all. It's not going to land on that. But verse 9 says, The dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned to him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into him into the ark. So the dove comes back, and remember the dove has a smaller range of flight. And so the dove comes back empty-handed, and then it says in verse 10, he stayed yet another seven days and he sent, and again, he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came into him in the evening and behold, in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off. So Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth. Now this bird has gotten an olive leaf. And um, many people, you know, using symbolism, people say this is the first example of a dove being the symbol of like hope or a peace and the olive, the olive branch leaf is considered a sign of peace. Like, have you ever heard that they extended them an olive branch? Like it's kind of a symbolic word of peace. And with all the judgment that has happened on the earth, right? Now there comes this dove with a message of, of peace, right? Peace on earth, goodwill to men. We might use the Christmas line, that God's judgment is past. This is a new beginning. This is a new era. And the dove arrives with this olive leaf. Now, the olive leaf can grow underwater, but the deal with birds is that the dove does not dive into the water and pluck it off, right? So, you know, there was some growth, and then the drying happened. The dove found that place. It broke off a leaf, and it came back as a sign. Now, Again, we don't understand and we know for sure how far Noah could see and what he could see and what he couldn't see. But let's think of it this way. His ark is up in the mountains. And in the mountains, the ark comes to rest. And he sends off these birds. He can't, we don't know how much he can see, right? Especially if he's stuck between two mountains and there's a valley or whatever. He's up in the mountains. That doesn't really tell him about how things are a long ways off. The value of these birds is that they can get out to other areas and when they come back, Noah can see there is growth happening. How many of you have been to a mountain where it was snowy on the top, but it was green on the bottom? Anyone? Okay. And there's a line on that mountain called the snow line, and there's another line called the tree line. And when you get so far up, trees can't grow anymore because they don't get enough rain or it's too cold or, I don't know, there's several things that can cause it. But then there's the snow line. And some mountains have snow on them all year round because it's so cold up there, right? So when, when Noah's ark lands on these mountains, he probably is not in a fertile, you know, it's not like he can just plant a garden outside the door of the ark or something, right? So he's got to use these birds to figure out how things are further down. If they march all the way down the mountain with all these animals and then they're like, oh, there's nothing here. We got to go back up to the ark, right? Um, you could have issues, and it's just certainly not how God intended things to unfold. So he wants to wait to leave the ark. 
It, as I mentioned earlier, I think they were itching and biting and biting and ready to go to get out of that ark, but it wasn't yet time, right? And they send out a test, come back, oh. Send out a bird, oh. This one came back, oh, it has an olive leaf. But even after that, they don't leave the ark yet. They wait further until the right time. And let me just point out that sometimes in our Christian life, we want to jump ahead, you know? Did anyone in this story have any idea about what the next step was? Yes. The next step is get off the ark, right? That is the next step, right? They knew that step, but it wasn't time to take that step yet, right? They were done with this step. This smelly, dark ark with its one little window, we're done. We're ready to get out of here. But they're waiting for the right time. And sometimes people jump ahead of the Lord. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's very obvious that, yes, this step is something that's supposed to happen, just not yet right now. And for Noah, he's supposed to be on the ark. The obvious next step is getting off, but he is not yet supposed to get off. Is there any question or comment on this section? Debbie. Here's the mic. And sometimes God's delays are to actually give us something better, you know. I don't know what evil could have befallen them or what trouble they may have had if they got off early, but God's delay was a sign of his wisdom and goodness, not a sign of his, you know, just being mean or something, right? There's wisdom there. All right, anyone else? Question or comment? All right. Let's go ahead then and let's see here. Uh, all right, so in verse 12, the dove does not return. All right, verse 13 and it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. All right. So before, it says he opened the window of the ark that he had made. But now it says he removed the covering of the ark and looked. And so this tells me that this is a step further from what he has done prior and he looked and he sees, behold, the face of the ground was dry. I don't know for sure what this covering of the ark is, but I imagine it to be the top portion where the window was that he, shall we say, broke open that area or removed more so that they could go up and out. Um, again, I don't know how big this window was. Actually, I think it does give a measurement of the window, doesn't it? A cubit by a cubit, is that right? Which we said was about 18 inches by 18 inches. So. The big real question is how skinny is Noah at this point, right? You know, can he fit? So it says he opens the covering and he looks out and he sees that the ground is dry. But notice the next verse. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. And so I see this as the ground around the ark was dried on this one day. But then looking at the earth as a whole, the ground was considered dried on this later second month, 27th day of the month. Um, so let's see here. First month, first day is when he removed. So we're talking about 57 days later, the whole earth is considered dried. Okay. Verse 14. So uh, some people have counted one year and 10 days in the ark. Again, a, a lot of people think, and I'm among them, that the ancient measure of a year was 360 days. And so if we're using that measure of a year um, 
over a year that he is in the ark. So um, certainly a long time when you think about it, a year on an ark. Um, knowing what it was, knowing what we know of the ark, that is a tremendous and difficult thought, spending that much time on the ark. God spoke to Noah, verse 15, saying, go forth from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring forth with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So they're supposed to come out. They're supposed to bring the animals out. I don't know if that was a real manual process, like a circus coming into town. You know, you got to haul them out and lead them out. Or if they unloaded the way they loaded, where it was more of divine pairing and divine movement, setting things up. And I wonder, too, I thought about this, you know, did they let the animals all go in one big shot, you know, just like, or was there, did they stage it? I don't know if they did, you know, this section and that, or the birds first and then this. And, but they, clearly, we know, they unloaded the ark, they unload themselves, and he, he says they need to breed abundantly and be fruitful and multiply. And so off they go. Verse 19, every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their kinds, went forth out of the ark. All right, so we made mention of some things last time. I want to bring some application. Before we get to that, is there any question or comment from anyone? Yes, sir. I guess when they're getting in the ark, uh, the Lord opened the door for them. So yes. I guess if they were small, it's just like a Well, I would have not done anything. Yes. Yes, and maybe looking at it from that point of view with God's judgment and all that, maybe they were scared to get off the ark, you know? And so they really wanted to wait until God specifically said, all right, you can get off the ark. And that is what they did. So that, that's a good uh, point of view. Which maybe in our application, the thought is this, we should be very careful to be in the will of God and then be very careful to stay in the will of God, right? And, um, you know, Sometimes people, they're, they, they'll talk about how God led them like to a place or to a situation or to a spouse or whatever. And they'll say, oh, yes, answer prayer. And, um, you know, I got counsel and God put so many things together. This is the will of God. Well, then what they do sometimes is they'll leave that. They'll leave that person or they'll leave that situation. And that was not, like, they didn't have those type of leadings to leave, but they had those type of leadings to get there. And that, it's a very important warning that we're not just deviating from something because of our feelings or this or that, you know. Um, to have clear and specific guidance from God to get to a place, then you should have that same guidance for to leave or to change or to do something different. I know sometimes with missionaries that's a big deal with with fields and changing fields or coming home and those sorts of things and um you know god's will is not one thing forever and ever amen i mean and certainly i mean marriage is for life but i'm just saying in general there are times god does change but we have to be careful that it is the leading of the lord that is leading us to move and not just our feelings all right any other questions or comments Okay, let's do a few applications here then at the end. Just think about 
what took place with the flood was a major transformative time. You had a world of wickedness, God determining to send judgment, and one ark was the path to safety. It was the only divine method to be rescued. So if you think of it in these terms, the ark is a bridge from the old world to the new world. The ark is a shelter from the wrath of God, right? It is a necessity that fit the reality of what was there for them. And an old world was ending and a new world was beginning. And this new world is not paradise. Eight sinners still got off the ark. But they were people that were in relationship to God. They were people that knew truth of God. And so those who were extremely rebellious and wicked, they were destroyed. They had disbelieved God. They had been condemned. And that world was gone. A new world was here. And I guess I just think of it in these terms that we live in a condemned and wicked world. And there is one bridge to a new world, and that is Jesus Christ. This world will pass away. The Bible promises us that in 2 Peter and elsewhere. With great flaming fire, taking vengeance, this world will be destroyed. But there is one path to escape this old world and to reach the new world, one that is far better and far better than Noah's new world. And that is Jesus Christ. He is the bridge to eternal life. So there's a beautiful picture of the gospel here with this story of, of the ark. Secondly, I want to say that specifically Genesis 8 is a story of a God who finishes what he starts. God told him to build the ark. God told him to get on the ark. And at this point, they're now supposed to trust God to finish what he started, right? Has God ever started something and then said, oh, I guess that was a waste of time. I'll forget that. No, God always does things with, with purpose and with intention. And I know God may seem to lead us into a dead end or something, but there are no true dead ends with God. Even if it, in humanly terms it's some sort of dead end, it's still a learning experience. It's still used of God. It's still part of his working. And so God finishes what he starts, and he told him to get on the ark, and he got him off the ark. So for you, if God has started a, a work in your life, he's going to finish that work. Is there a scripture that tells us this? What is it? That's right. And that is Philippians 1.6. He who has begun the good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And we see it with the story of Noah, and it's true in our life. And so if you're in this middle part where God started but he hasn't finished, then you just keep trusting him that he will finish what he starts. Secondly, I, I just see that a God who sees our need, he knew they needed to get off that ark. <laughs> he hadn't forgotten them. He wasn't ignoring them. He was protecting them. And he saw their need. He knew they wouldn't live there forever. He knew they couldn't live there forever. And so God sees our need, and he, he meets the need in his own time. And with Noah, then, I see a man who is waiting, and who waited in faith and in patience. This is Noah's patience in waiting. And a, just a quick word on this is that impatience is an underrated evil. Um, sometimes we just think of impatience as, oh, you know, you need to calm down a little bit. But impatience can have devastating consequences. And um, these people patiently waited for the right time to get off the ark. 
And, um, you know, again, maybe they were very fearful of getting off early, uh, but still they trusted God in his timing. Now, the last is a more big picture uh, view, but I just want to point out that the story of the flood and the ark shows us that we have a God who responds and who adjusts in connection to mankind. And this does not mean that we're in control. That is not at all the idea. God is in control. But the fact is, is that God responds to our decisions, and not just personally, but as a corporate world as well. And so you had a world that more and more and more had chosen to forsake and reject God, right? Well, God made a decision in connection with that. And his decision was to send 40 days and 40 nights of rain to destroy all that lived and moved on the earth except those who were on the ark. This was a transitional moment in the life of mankind. You say, what do you mean? Well, what I mean is this, is that that era was gone and a new era was born. Many, many times when you have a changing of an era in Scripture, you have 40 as a, a number that's involved in that. And I'm not getting sold in, on numbers, but there is some truth to numbers and patterns and things. And do you remember when Israel, as God's vehicle, ended and the church began? Do you remember that? When did Israel stop ceasing to be the house of God? Any takers? Well, um, Jesus spent 40 days in the desert with his temptation with Satan. But after his... Um, so my first question about Israel ending. Do you remember when Israel ended? What did you say? Very close. That was the end of the 40. The Israel ended when um, on the cross, he said, it is finished, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Remember that? No longer from that point on was there supposed to be a temple system with sacrifices. The sacrifice had come. Well, what we find there is that from his resurrection until his ascension, we have a 40-day period. 40 days, and he says, I will ascend to heaven, and he says, just shortly the Spirit will come, and so on, and 10 days later at Pentecost, the Spirit came. But there's that 40-day window of Jesus from his resurrection until his ascension. We do have the 40 days of him being tempted in the desert as well. But my point, and, and that started a new era of Jesus and his ministry, right? Jesus was a carpenter's son before that, but at his baptism and that 40 days of testing, we have a new era of Jesus there. My point in the big picture is that Noah receives a covenant from God, which we'll look at next week and get into the details. But this 40 days and 40 nights of rain was judgment, and it was transition from the old world to the new world. So this new world had some differences, didn't it? What is different about the new world? Well, people don't live as long in this new world. Now, the Bible says, if you kill someone, your blood will be shed. Capital punishment was instituted with Noah. Before this, there was no capital punishment. Now, the animals are frightful beasts that may kill you, whereas before, the animals were calm. That's one reason how they got along on the ark so well, okay? So, the beasts were not killing, right? And so, um, we have a different world in this world than was in the old world. And... Um, so my point in that is that this is a dispensational turning point. God has his chapters, if you will, in how he deals with mankind. Certainly Christ dying on the cross was an ending of an era, the beginning of a new era, and we see it with, with Noah as well, that God interacts with mankind. I'm thankful there are more chapters in God's book. 
And one of his chapters is for seven years, Israel will be surrounded by its enemies. There will be a, you know, a, um, what's the bad guy who rules the world? Antichrist. There we are. Sunday at 2.30, isn't it? And, um, you know, that Antichrist, Jesus comes to rescue the children of Israel. That's the end of chapter tribulation. And then opens chapter kingdom, right? And in chapter kingdom, Jesus rules from Jerusalem. Do you remember, do you know that when Jesus comes out of heaven to rescue the, his children at the end of the tribulation, do you know who comes with him? It says there will be white horses and his, the hosts of heaven come with him. And I don't know about you, but I think you need to start some horse lessons because you're going to be riding a white horse if you're the Lord. So, you know, some people say, will dogs be in heaven? Not sure about dogs, but there are going to be some horses. So, all right, any final questions or comments? Otherwise, we will go. Deborah is first and then Matt. I just think it would be interesting getting off the ark seeing the earth broken up and the mountains and being like, wow, mm. I could have been up there and back. And yes. Everything else is dead. And thinking about how they sacrificed and praised God afterwards to see, look what God saved me from. Yes. And just like you were saying, the comparison to someday, that will be us when we're in the new world, when mm. we're in heaven with God. And it's just to praise yes. it even more because we will see it. Like, look what God saved us from through Jesus. Yes. Yes. Amen. I like the application about us praising God when we get off the ark. Yeah, that's great. Brother Matt. Uh, the morning service on uh, John 14, mm -hmm. the new paradigm, uh, Christ replaying um, the principles of all the time, mm -hmm. not the meaning. I say Christians, can we also make the first same statement that the devil has not done his business in us? Um, that's an excellent question. I don't think we can say it to the degree that Jesus says it because the Bible warns us neither give place to the devil and that giving place seems to mean a place in our life or our something under our control, right? And so Jesus did, never gave place to the devil, obviously. But we're told not to. So I think that means that if, if we're not careful, we can. And so um, I, I think... He has nothing in me. That that phrase can be taken a lot of different ways, I guess. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And and showing the complete distinction between him, the King of Kings, and the Prince of this world. There's no overlap. There's no unity. There's no agreement in any way. So, yeah, that's good. Anything else on that? Okay. Yeah, good question there. Um, seemed like there was some follow-up I was going to say. Oh, I just like how that emphasizes that Jesus is making it so clear that Satan is not winning. He's not, Jesus isn't losing, Satan's not winning. And it was vital for those disciples to hear that because it looked like things were going so badly, you know. So it's really, I, I love how he makes mention of that. And, you know, I've read that before, but I didn't really connect it to the story in that, you know, he's trying to make his disciples see that this is not the end. This is not uh, as bad as it seems, you know. So, all right. Well, um, we will head our separate ways. Um, let's 
have prayer and we'll do announcements first. So um, Brother Rosario, would you pray for us?